are back in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, we're going to be looking in chap- at the end of chapter 23, verses 20 through 33, and then all the way through chapter 24. And so I asked uh, Chad Barlow to come up and do our scripture reading. We're not going to read the entirety of this whole section this morning, but we are going to read uh, all of chapter 24. So I'd invite you to stand with us as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seventy of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I, that I may give you the tablets of stone, which the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of God. Thanks, Chad. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we call out to you this morning. As we call upon your name, we recognize that we have no right as sinners such as us to enter into your presence, and yet you have reached towards us. In the person of Jesus Christ, you have made a way for us to have open access before your throne so that we can call upon you and we can receive mercy and grace in our time of need. We are a needy people, so as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would uh, take it and use it to pierce into our hearts, to reveal in us where we have fallen short, and through that, remind us that you made a way to cover and atone for our sins through the gospel, and so I just pray that this morning our hearts would be drawn to worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would be drawn to recognize the great gift of our salvation that's been 
that's been secured through our Savior. So I pray that we would, uh, as your people today, be able to rejoice together in your goodness to us, regardless of the circumstances and the things that are happening in our lives and in, in the communities around us. And I pray that we would find hope in you alone this morning and in your presence with us. So we ask this in the beautiful and glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. If you guys don't know me, one of my passions is, uh, is mountain biking. And uh, last year, I, uh, I was trying to encourage my, my son to maybe get, get into it, to, to pursue it. And so I took my, my son Landon down to the uh, mountain bike track, the small track that's over there by Spring Canyon Park. And uh, rode around for a little while, went off a couple rocks and all, and so he, he started to really enjoy it. We left there and he was just, he was just fascinated, loved it, and so he said, I, I want to get into mountain biking. But uh, if you saw his bike at the time, it was this really old, I think it was a hand-me-down actually from the Santinis, and so um, it was, uh, it, it's, it's had some, uh, some miles put on it, and so it's in pretty rough shape, and so uh, probably wasn't going to get him very far in mountain biking. So he decided that he wanted to pursue getting a new mountain bike. Um, and so uh, I said, well, start saving. And so he started saving his money up. Well, it turns out as, uh, as Christmas uh, got closer, we were able to find a, a really nice used mountain bike that I had my brother fix up, and uh, we were going to give it to him. And so uh, he had no idea. And so on Christmas morning, just to kind of play it out a little bit, I, uh, I gave him this box and uh, said, this is your gift. And so he, he opened this box, and in that box he pulled out a bike tire. It's a bike tire. And he says... Okay, this is interesting. Why, why, why'd you give me this? Like, like, what am I supposed to do with this? And, uh, you know, he was trying to be nice about it, but he's like, what, what do I do with a bike tire? I said, well, that's for your bike in the garage. And he says, oh, well, uh, I don't even think it's going to fit. I think it's too big. I said, I don't know. Maybe you should go check. And so he goes, he takes his tire, and he goes out to the garage. And as he goes into the garage then, and we got it on video, so it was really cool, then he walks in and he sees this new mountain bike for him. And uh, it was this cool moment where he was so, super excited but that, that tire was kind of there just to tease him, but ultimately was pointing him towards this bike that we had actually gotten for him. It was a great moment. And I think sometimes for us, as, as we look back into texts like this in the Old Testament, it's kind of like us maybe opening up a bike tire. It's like, okay, this is interesting. Looks like a nice tire, but uh, what do I do with this? What's the, what's the significance of this? And it's, it's not actually until we realize that, that all these things that, that we look at, that we read in, in the Old Testament, are actually pointing us to far greater realities. And it's only then that the meaning and the beauty of these things actually starts to set in for us. And I think we saw that very clearly last week as we looked at this ancient Mosaic Code, and these laws that to us seem very strange. And today we encounter another passage in which we, it speaks of God's conquest of this land and His desire to, to settle this people into this place of promise. And we witness in this text this ancient covenant confirmation ceremony that to us seems rather strange and almost barbaric. There's lots of blood getting thrown around and altars. And as we look at these ancient passages and as we see these historical images they point us to the reality that, that God is still at work and is on a mission. And we see in these movements and in these images and in these patterns, we see that all of this is leading us somewhere and pointing us actually to the expansion of God's plan towards its glorious goal. 
And we see that God's work with Israel actually expands and enhances as it moves forward, ultimately to its greater fulfillment. And I think we see that in multiple ways in this passage here. To recount the story where we're at, we've seen how God has taken this enslaved people, has rescued and redeemed them out of their bondage and slavery. He's led them out and, and delivered them through the waters of the Red Sea. He's provided and guided them in their wandering in the wilderness, and he has brought them then to this mountain, this place in which they encounter God, this terrifying scene in which they cannot even approach God in this place. And Yahweh has now given them His law, this which is to shape them and form them into a people that points them towards God's righteousness and His holiness, that which He always wanted them to embody. He is now working to commission them as His representatives that ultimately will be a light to the nations. And we see here God's ongoing commitment to His people as He enacts this covenant relationship with them here in chapter 24. So we're going to walk through this, the end of chapter 23 and 24 here in, in just three mo- movements. And I've gotten away from alliteration lately in my sermon, so I thought I'd get back onto some alliteration for us. And so our points here this morning are going to be the, the mission of God's angel, the mission of God's angel, the making of a covenant people, and then I went overboard, and then we see the mystical meal on the mountain. <laughs> there we go. So... So let's walk, walk through this, this text as, as we begin to continue to see the expansive realities and the expansive promises of God in this. So we see the mission of God's angel. Chapter 23, verses 20 to 33 here at the end of this serves as the conclusion of this book of the covenant. And while there are a few more commands that are embedded in here, actually most of this section is much more about what God is going to do to uphold his end of the deal. In this section, we continue to see that God's deliverance and His formation of this people is His unwavering mission, and it will be accomplished by His power alone. And so God declares that He is going to send His angel before them. Chapter 23, verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. This angel will guard them, will guide them, goes down later on and says that that he will not pardon their iniquities, which begs the question, what kind of angel even has any right to forgive sins? Then it even goes further and says that the the very name of God is in him. So begin to wonder, who is this angelic figure here? I think in order to really understand this, we need to be reminded of back in Exodus chapter 3 where we encountered this angel previously. In Exodus chapter 3, When Moses encounters this burning bush, what does it say? It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And then it goes down and it says, then, God called to him out of the bush. So, it appears that we have have something more than just merely an angelic messenger, but I think actually what what we see here, the the theological term is called a theophany or a, a physical manifestation of God, a way in which God physically manifests himself to humanity. It's the very presence of God that is seen in this angelic figure. And in this, God is declaring under covenant oath that He will guide Israel into this land of promise. And God's presence with them should give them assurance that the victory will be won. 
God is going to do this. And when they enter the land, God is going to drive out all these other peoples from before them. And we've seen this over and over throughout this whole narrative, that, that, that God is with His people. He did not rescue them out of Egypt just to kind of, you know, bring them out into the desert and then kind of send them on their merry way and, and best of luck to you all. But He brought them out to do something with them. They weren't just saved from something, but they were saved to be something, to be a people that would point others to, to know this God. And I think this, this, this declaration of God's, God's presence with Israel is such a good reminder for us. And we see the reality that God has always been with His people. And in fact, what we actually see in God's redemptive story is that God's presence is expanded and it's enhanced even in our experience. You know, sometimes maybe you'd be tempted to look at this and be like, I'm kind of envious of, of Israel. Wouldn't it be nice to have kind of a godlike angel guiding you through your day, right? Or, you know, that pillar of cloud or fire deal, like, sure would be nice for, the, for something to guide me towards, you know, the right job that I'm supposed to take or something just very clear that I can do. And sometimes we look back and, and we wish that, that, that God would show up like this. But we, we minimize what God has actually done for us. He has given us His Word that we can know Him, that we can understand Him, that He's, he's given us this whole story that he, has, that he has told throughout human history, and we can see it clearly. And then when He left, He didn't just abandon us, but He actually sent the Holy Spirit to come and indwell our lives, and we cannot understate this reality that we, as God's people today, have God's very presence with us constantly. His Spirit is at work in you and in me. It's been enhanced. It's actually been expanded in fullness into our experience of God's presence through the Spirit in our lives. And whenever you are tempted to think that God has abandoned you, this, stories like this should, should remind us that God does not abandon those whom He calls. God's work in your life up to this point should be a reminder and a declaration that He is still with you. God does not quit. He doesn't just give up on those whom He calls, but He will continue to complete His work in us. Amen. But in this call, Israel is also called to covenant loyalty, right? They, they are told to obey His voice. They say, don't rebel against this angel as, as He guides you. They say, if you trust His words, He will be an enemy to your enemies, to stay loyal to Yahweh, that He will fight for you and He will guide you. I heard a, one of the pastors in our network, I saw a quote from him in a, in a recent sermon this week where he said, it's not whether God is on your side, but are you actually on God's side? And there's this challenge to Israel as they, as they go into the land, as they encounter these other people groups and even see their gods and the idols that they have set up, what does is, what is he challenge them? He says, don't bow down to their gods. Don't serve them. He says, in fact, you actually have to get rid of them. You need to tear down the idols. You need to smash them to pieces. Remove the temptation from your midst. Because in the end, he says in verse 33, if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Don't make a covenant relationship with these gods. You are in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. 
So do not bow down to these gods. Do not even keep them around. And I think that's such a good challenge for us because how often do we actually just kind of try to keep some idols around in, in our lives? You know, those things that we know are maybe drawing our hearts away from God, those things that trip us up, yet we think that we can kind of house them a little bit, we can have like a, a place for them in our lives a little bit. But the challenge here is, is, is that when we, when we keep those things around, we provide space for those things, they will always tend to, in the end, be a snare to us and draw our hearts away. It's kind of like any time like, someone tries to like, domesticate and have like, a lion or a tiger as their pet. Like, that usually doesn't end well, right? Whether it's the Tiger King or you know, the, the magical you know, show that, that had tigers or whatever, it seems really cool, it seems pretty amazing, but in the end, somebody loses an arm. Something happens, usually goes bad. Sometimes we try to, try to have, you know, little pet sins, little, little idols that we kind of keep around alongside, and, and in the end, it usually leads towards the destruction in our lives, and I think we've all experienced that in different ways. So the challenge is to, to, to root out the idols, to get rid of them in our lives, and for, for Israel, they had to remove the idolatry that was already within the land that they were entering into. And if they were, were actually pursued faithfulness to Yahweh, then, then these blessings of God would be displayed, and it's, it's declared in these terms that speak of just kind of a, a full and perfect life. The idea that there would be no deficiency, He would bless their bread and water, take away sickness, no, no miscarriage or barrenness in the land, and that they would have a full and long life. This is the language of, of restoration, this is the end goal of, 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 of Israel if they actually fulfill their covenant obligations and live in faithfulness to Yahweh. Of course, we know that they could never actually accomplish that. But God also continues to give them assurance of victory that He is going to do it, but He's going to do it in His timing and in His way. He says that when they go in, that He's going to drive out all of these other nations. He said that he will send this terror before them. He even describes, uses this, this figurative language of sending the hornet into, into them to drive out these people. But in this whole scene, basically Israel does nothing. They sit back and, and God does this for them. And he promises that he will, he, he will get them through all obstacles and all barriers as he guides them to the place where he wants them. But he says how he's going to do it. He says, I'm not going to do it all at once, but he's going to do it little by little that he'll drive them out from before them. And that's such a good thing for us to actually take notice of in this passage. Because we oftentimes will set our hearts towards you know, loyalty to God, that we're going to trust him and, and, and let him lead us in our lives. But yet when we encounter an obstacle or a difficulty in life, what do we want? We want that addressed immediately. We want that dealt with. We want that removed from before us right away. But God sometimes has a plan and a purpose for doing things slowly in His timing, in His ultimate purpose, that He's actually accomplishing something far greater than we actually see in the moment. It's going to be done according to His time and according to His ways. But as, as the mission of this angel is set forth, it should remind us that God is still with us. It points us to the fuller reality that God is still guiding us. His Spirit is with us today. He has not abandoned us. 
and He will lead us in His timing and His ways to where He wants us. The next movement that picks up in chapter 24 is the making of a covenant people. It begins by Moses being called back up to the mountain. And it can get kind of confusing as you read through this because uh, throughout this section all the way back to chapter 19, Moses actually goes up and down from the mountain multiple times. And so he goes up and he hears from God and then he returns to tell the people. So after he received the law, Moses comes and gives the people the terms of this covenant agreement. And all the details that we covered from from the Ten Commandments all the way through the, the law code of chapters 19 through 23, it is set forth to the people. And then we are given the response of the people to this law. What do they say? They, they gladly cry out and say, hey, we, all that God has said, we will do. Everything that God has said, we, are, we will do. We are in. We're going to obey it. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read chapter 32, they actually don't do a very good job at this. Moses comes down and is like, hey, guys, what you doing? Remember that covenant we made with God? What's the golden calf all about? We see very quickly Israel's inability to do this, much like a small child who has just taken something from their brother. And you say, hey, give it back. Hey, hey, you got to share. We're not going to do that. Okay, yes, I'm going to do it. And then you turn your back, and the next moment they have that thing again. And we see that pattern in Israel. But here in this moment, they say, yes, everything that God has said in the law, we will do, we are in. And in the next verses, we see this covenant ratification ceremony, this strange event that happens. Moses writes down the words of the covenant on this scroll. Then he says that he gets up early, he builds an altar. Then he sets up 12 stone pillars, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel, Then he calls a bunch of, of, of young men to come and, and offer sacrifices. Moses then, as, as, they're, as they're slaughtering these animals for sacrifice, he gathers all of the blood, gathers the blood, and he, he divides it into these two buckets. And one bucket he takes and he, he, he pours it against the altar, signifying God's presence. And then he, he, he stops and he, he reads the book of the covenant again. To the people, the terms of the agreement. And then he takes the other bucket of blood. I thought about trying to reenact this today for us, but I figured that might not go go over too well. And he takes it, and it says that he throws it against the people. And ever since this day, this is why nobody wants to sit in the front row at church, right? Actually, many scholars believe that... uh, Likely, this, this may not have been literally on the people themselves, but actually potentially on those 12, st- 12 pillars in represent- that were representing the people uh, within this, in this context. Either way, it wasn't as though he, you know, helicopter dropped blood on, on this entire population of people, but uh, you, you see the symbolism here, right? That as the blood is thrown on the altar, the book is read, and then the, the people are then, the, symbolically, the blood is, is spilled on them. You see what's happening, right? The closest thing we have to anything like this, I think, is probably a wedding ceremony in which two people come together and they they, they declare their vows to one another in the presence of others. And then they they seal that vow, you know, ultimately with a ring that's placed on the finger as a declaration and a commitment to the binding nature of those vows. 
And so we see that, that in this ceremony, God and Israel are now bound by this covenant relationship. As blood is that which unites a family together, the nation is now bound to God by the blood of the covenant ceremony. And it's so important for us to actually remember that this isn't just an ancient barbaric practice, but this is actually the way that God used to figure and to point toward the ultimate answer to man's sin. This is ultimately a, a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews picks this up and explains this. I love that, that, that many of the ladies in our church are actually going through a study through the book of Hebrews. If you're not doing it, I encourage you, get involved. It's, it's an amazing book that really unpacks so much of these Old Testament themes and ideas and points to the, to the, the, the reality of, of how Jesus is better than all of this. And in Hebrews 9, the writer argues that Jesus functions as a better priest because he has brought and enacted a better covenant for us. And he argues that both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant had to be enacted by blood. And he picks up and, and alludes to Exodus 24 here when he says this in Hebrews 9.19. When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled with both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Then he picks up a, something that we'll see later. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. So they sprinkled everything with blood, the people, the altar, as they went on and, and created the tabernacle, things were, were sprinkled with blood, figuring this, this purification. If you're a little squeamish, this was not the, the time to live, right? Blood was everywhere. And the writer of Hebrews says this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And all this symbolic blood sprinkling and splashing pointed to the need for atonement, that Israel could not enter into God's presence. God couldn't enter and, and, and be together because of the sin that had made them unclean before God. And so there, there had to be a purification, had to be purified in order to come before God. And God set conditions for this to take place. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that this arrangement was limited. This, this covenant could never actually work. And he says this, speaking of all the sacrifices that happened after this, that in, the, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Because under this covenant, this early covenant, it depended on Israel being able to actually uh, live into it, to obey the terms of the covenant perfectly. And every time that they failed, it meant that, that a new purification had to, be, had to be made for them. They had to be cleaned again. And so over and over, God in, installed this, this system of, of, of how they could be purified so that, that God's presence could dwell with a sinful people. And it happened over and over again. And ultimately, the writer of Hebrews says it didn't work because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sins. And so he says this, he says that Jesus does away with the first covenant in order to establish the second. He comes and fulfills all of the obligations of the first covenant in himself 
so that he can establish a better covenant. And he says, by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is also what Jesus declared in Mark 14 when he, when he ate the Last Supper with his disciples. As, as he took this Passover meal and he, he took these elements, and in that he, he, he is pointing to him being the true Passover lamb, but he also declares this. He said, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. See what he's doing? He's, he's taking the language of Exodus 24 and applying it to himself, that in his death on the cross, he is enacting a new covenant, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, his own perfect sacrifice. Jesus proclaims to us a new and a better covenant by His own blood for us. And that covenant is offered to all of us. It's offered to us freely. And here's the reality for all of us, is that, that we will either make a covenant with whatever God that we choose, or we will actually receive the covenant that God has offered to us. We don't get to set the terms and, and, and try to work our way to the, the, some kind of right relationship with God. God has set the terms and calls us to Him, the one and only way in which we can find entry into His presence through His blood alone. And if we don't receive that, then we're going to end up making covenants with other gods. Whether that's the God and the idol of our success, the idol of, of pleasure, seeking to fulfill our lusts. Maybe the, the idol and the God of just control, we will say that, hey, we'll set up an agreement and say, hey, if, if, if you will give me this thing, if you, will, if you will provide for me what I'm looking for, then I will serve you. I will bow down to you. I will commit my entire life to you. We have, the world is full with so many people making a covenant with some kind of God in the hopes that that God will actually come through and provide for them what they're longing. But Jesus comes and says that he has offered us a covenant to atone for our sins through his very blood. We see in this passage the expansive imagery that the blood that was splashed and sprinkled on these stones actually points to a far greater reality in the shed blood of Jesus that actually covers and atones for our sin. The passage then calls us to uh, look at what happens here on the mountain. And we see this mystical meal on the mountain. Moses and these 73 other men, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and these 70 elders, are called to then go and ascend the mountain. All the other people have to stay back, and they stay further away. And there's kind of tears in which, which he, only Moses is actually allowed to go up kind of even further. But something interesting happens when they go up there. It says that they saw the God of Israel, which may cause you to scratch your head if, if you've read through the Bible much, because even in just a number of chapters, Moses will ask to see God's glory. 
And God declares to him that nobody can actually see him, see his face and live. The New Testament has passages like John 1 and 1 Timothy that says that no man has seen God, that you can't see God. And so, but here we, we have these men going up and it says that they saw the God of Israel. So what did they see? Well, if you look at it, it's kind of interesting. It says that they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the heavens for clearness. It's kind of an interesting description of God, right? <laughs> kind of the, the stones under his feet. So did they actually see him or did they kind of see maybe just a, a glimpse of, of him, of something God manifests himself and shows himself in this veiled way, and we see this in many times. So there is this reality that we see over and over that sinful man cannot just enter into the presence of a holy God. It would be undone to fully see God's glory displayed. But yet, we also see times in which God does invite and give a glimpse of himself to men. He did this with Abraham. Jacob had a night in which he wrestled with God. Moses here and, and, and later on, Moses eventually comes down from the, from the mountain and his face is glowing because he's in some sense been in the presence of God. And so, so we, we see this tension that, that we cannot approach a holy God and yet God is seeking to provide a way in which he can reveal himself and dwell with man again. And it tells us that they saw God and God did not lay his hand on them. So they, in a sense, they, they, should have, they should have and could have been destroyed in the presence of God, but yet God does not destroy them. And in fact, something else happens, something amazing happens. It says that they ate and drank. Or they just kind of get hungry up there and need a snack on the way? No, like, like, I think something much more significant is happening here. In this language, when it says that they ate and they drank, at its most basic sense, this meal that happens here serves to confirm and to celebrate the enacting of this covenant that was made, not unlike a meal that we would share and eat after a wedding ceremony, right, at a reception. But it points to this moment of intimacy with God, this moment that we haven't really seen up to this point, God has been distant, marked off in this, in this flaming cloud. Like you, the people don't even want to go near that. It's terrifying. But when they eat this meal in God's presence in some sense, it shows us that they are at peace with God. They've come to Him on the terms of this covenant arrangement And I actually think that, that something very powerful and beautiful in the unfolding redemptive pattern is taking place here. And we see this throughout Scripture, and we see that, that this pattern reveals us to us God's desire to return to the intimacy of Eden. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, they walked in fellowship with God in God's very presence as He manifested Himself to them. And what did they do? They ate of any tree that they wanted that God had richly provided to them. And as they rebelled and ate of the wrong tree, they are cast out of God's presence. They cannot dwell in that relationship. And then it says that they're only going to eat, not from any tree, but by the, by the sweat of their brow, by hard labor and toil will they actually eat. 
Later on, as we looked at earlier in Exodus 13, God then provides them this and offers them this meal, this meal that should point them to the hope of redemption in the Passover. And we see this, this moment in, on the mountain where these men eat this, this covenant confirmation meal in the presence of God. Isaiah, the prophet, picks up this theme that's, that's pointing towards this greater trajectory in Isaiah 25 when he says this. On this mountain, Mount Zion in the, in the, in the context, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. This isn't the boxed wine. This is the good stuff. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken." Sounds like a meal you want to be a part of. And the hope of this restoration meal is picked even up even by Jesus as he's talking to this, this, faith, this, this centurion who exercised great faith. He says, I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. I believe even the, the feeding of the 5,000 is a foreshadowing of, of this trajectory as John describes it, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he, and he sits down with his disciples and he sees the, the, this, this crowd of people coming to them and he multiplies this, this meal for them there on the mountain, on the hillside. And we see the trajectory culminate in Revelation chapter 19 where we are told this, it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Do you see the expanding trajectory here? That God has always been working to restore the relationship between God and humanity that was lost and fractured since sin entered. And along the way in this unfolding story, we get glimpses of God doing that. Next week is going to be awesome. We've given Matt Whitney the uh, really tall task of preaching like the next six chapters of this book. So you might want to pack a lunch next week for that, but it's, it's going to be awesome as he, as he tries to unpack for us this, the imagery and all that's bound up with the tabernacle. God then gives them the, the instructions for this tabernacle, this tent that will be built. And we've seen that God is establishing the terms of his covenant. And they are now marked off as his, as his people, as a kingdom of priests. And God will now dwell in their midst. And, and everything bound up with the tabernacle is about God creating a way for his presence to actually dwell within and amongst the people. And this is a massive moment because man now has a way to, to enter into God's presence. Yes, it's through these, this, this mediator and the whole priestly system and everything, but it's pointing towards this greater trajectory that God has always been seeking to fulfill. God, through Israel, is on a mission to find a way to invite a sinful people to feast with Him 
in his presence at his table once again. And that is the expansive hope of, and the promise of this story. And there's an open invitation to that feast to ask, will you, will you be there? Not on your own merit, but as you are united to the faithful covenant partner to Jesus. Have you been cleansed and, and purified by his blood alone? Have you received the covenant that he has offered to us, the new and better way? And do you have the assurance that one day at that feast you will be included? It's an open invitation. But only to those who look and are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Moses, at the conclusion of this passage, ascends further on the mountain and he receives the, the stone tablets in which the Ten Commandments are, are, are written by the very finger of God. And God is going to continue to give him instructions for the, the making of the tabernacle. And as he's up there, in verse 17, it says, The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Like God is never domesticated. He's never, he's never just changed and, and, and made this nice, calm, quiet God. He is a consuming fire. And yet, the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God that we see throughout these images is the same God that invites us to find protection in his greatness and his glory and to find unity and intimacy with him once again. Moses is going to spend the next 40 days up on the mountain, and people are going to be tested on how well they wait for God. And we'll see that in a few weeks. But I hope that you begin to see in these stories that the Bible is, as I think it's the Bible Project that their tagline is, that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus and we see that as we unpack these ancient texts that can seem strange to us, but they point us to these greater realities. And I hope that this can be a hope and an encouragement to you, that as we see the angel guide Israel, we take hope in the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us to guard us, to lead us, to guide us, to battle sin in our lives, to pursue holiness as God's people. The blood that was splattered and sprinkled points us to the greater blood of Jesus that has been shed for us, the sacrifice once and for all that doesn't have to be made again. So we can have assurance in this meal that these men ate in the presence of God. It's just a, a brief glimpse and a foretaste of that great marriage supper that one day will be had in the very presence of God. This is a beautiful story that we've been invited to participate in. So will you be there? Will we enter into that together? So let's pray and thank God for his gracious word and his work in our lives. Father, we thank you for these images, for this narrative that helps us to, to realize what you are doing in this world. That you are working back to create a way for a sinful and broken people to dwell in the presence of a holy and just God. And you've done that through the work of Jesus, his blood that has been offered once for all. I pray that we would, we would believe in that, that we would take hope in that, and that we would rest in these realities today. Let us be a people then that goes forth, not to gain entrance into your presence, but let's be a people that lives as those who daily can enter into your presence and find the strength 
and the help that we need as your spirit continues to guide and direct our steps every day. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.